This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser, along with Paul Sweeney. We had a lot of virus headlines today. And, of course, we were just recently talking about what's going on in New York City. We did have the head of Roche come out warning that a widespread vaccine this year is unlikely. And we continue to see uh, virus uh, spread around Europe once again, a second wave there. There's a lot going on when it comes to COVID-19. Alyssa Rapp is one of those voices we've talked to uh, many times throughout the pandemic. She's CEO of the healthcare solutions company, Surgical Solutions. She joins us once again on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. Alyssa, nice to have you here with Paul and myself. How is it going? Hi, Carol. Hi, Paul. Thank you for having me. Well, I think that it's it continues to be a complicated COVID landscape. On the one hand, we know the diagnoses are up in 56,000-ish a day, and 31 states are reporting more uh, cases than the previous week. And yet there is an overwhelming amount of uh, intelligence now that COVID-19 transmissions from children, and maybe the children are not to blame. So I think it's, it's a tough, tough to navigate. So, Alyssa, on that front, you know, the children here, you know, the New York City schools are, you know, obviously the largest school district in the country, opening pretty well so far. Does that suggest that maybe children are not super spreaders, which was a risk as we reopened schools? Great question, Paul. So, you know, there was an interesting article on this in The Atlantic just about 10 days ago that schools aren't the super spreaders. Um, from an economist at Brown University, Emily Oster. And I, I'm certainly not seeing that they're the super spreaders where we are in suburban Chicago. And if children are in masks and socially distant, between that, between that economist view and the American Academy of Pediatrics literally also pr- printed an article that said COVID-19, the child is not to blame. And an Icelandic study talked about how children don't give it to teachers. I, I am not an epidemiologist. I said it once, I'll say it again. But to me, the data is compelling that children don't seem to be super spreaders. And I'm really glad the reopening has been less um, virulent, pun intended, than, than people anticipated. Right. We actually had Emily on and uh, we did a great oh, story in Bloomberg Business Week about her and just kind of her background and her thinking. But we also had her on to talk about her work and her research. Yeah, it's interesting. I just did a, a big discussion with a bunch of global real estate leaders. And, you know, there was a consensus, especially when it comes to colleges and universities, a feeling of we've got to get those students back. I think, you know, the concern among colleges and universities has been the older professors and their exposure. Yeah, and I, I teach, as you, you may know, right. at Stanford University and University of Chicago, and they've been very conservative about Zooming only for the fall out of not concern for potentially me or my age peer group, but um, older professors. And I think that's actually gone better than expected from a student learning perspective, at least at the graduate level. But I think we do, of course, have to be most concerned about our most vulnerable population, and that includes age and other comorbidities or risk factors, and, and that those are the folks who will likely get the vaccine first, as they should. But the question now becomes, how do we learn to live with it until the vaccine is truly widespread by the middle of next year? And I'm a little bit hopeful, in spite of the numbers I, I cited in the beginning, that if children aren't the super spreaders and we can at least get kids back to school with masks, socially distant and safe ways, even if it's hybrid learning like my, my two daughters, who are under 10, both enjoy, then at least civilization and society, as we know, it can start to unlock a little bit. 
Hey, Alyssa, you're, you know, your company, you have over 200 employees are really on the front lines of this in the healthcare system. One of the, the concerns or questions I guess people have is, okay, we were, we being the U.S. healthcare system was, you know, fairly well blindsided by this back in March of last year. What have we learned from a healthcare facility perspective? Are we in better shape for a potential second wave? I, I talked to our major hospitals. We have 40 across the country in nine states, and they are better prepared operationally in terms of PPE and supplies and protocols. Um, but a lot of hospital administrators think about COVID right now as a second job. It literally doubles their mm-hmm. workload. So I think the bigger risk is not operational preparedness, but, but burnout amongst yeah. frontline providers as well as the administrators, because this has taken a major toll on, on, our, on our people. Hey, I want to go back to, if I may, just Alyssa, to education for a moment. I do wonder if there had been some consensus, some, you know, overarching guidance from government. I'm not looking to get political here, but, you know, some rules from the government about here's here's some plans and ways to, to reopen education on a national scale so that we didn't have all these hybrid approaches. Would that have been better and maybe helped get education open, uh, up and running sooner and more and safer? It may have, but I heard Dr. Fauci speak to the Economic Club of Chicago about six weeks ago, and his Mm -hmm. response to that question was, I thought, the best I've heard, which is we should – our federal response should be one of localization. So Hmm. it doesn't matter what state you're in. It should matter what locality you're in and what the cases are. Are they on the rise? If you're in a a state where it's on the rise but your locality has no cases of COVID, like some of our hospitals in rural Kentucky – then you should be back open. Your kids should be in school and masks the social distancing, no matter what the state situation is, although I don't know if Kentucky is a, a rising state today. But yeah. what I think his answer is the best one. If the federal policy had been its hyper-local decision-making on this, perhaps we would have had more nimble responses, perhaps. So, listen, it, I guess, it, you know, as it relates to these schools and so on. I mean, it, it seems like the virtual is working. That's why I have a high school student with a kind of a hybrid approach. That seems to be one of the more successful ones. I think hybrid with with some in-person and some uh, virtual learning does, to me, also, Paul, seem like the more successful approach if, of course, you can flex to pure virtual if there's an exposure. And if the world is very different come spring and there's a vaccine that's wide, widely dis- distributed, then people could be back. But I, I am grateful we're back hybrid as well in elementary school. I think the biggest risk is, as we know, with our college campuses or graduate schools where adult, young adults uh, are, are in concentrated settings and maybe not taking as many precautions, and that's where we see a spread. So we'll see. You know, Alyssa, you did mention you are teaching. Are you teaching classes right now? I'm just curious if you are and how that's going. Yeah, thanks so much, Carol. I did teach this spring in the beginning of the pandemic, and I just finished a course at Stanford Business School via Zoom, of course, and it's going well. It's just a different art form. Uh, when you're a, when you're a professor at a graduate level with 40 to 60 people in the room, you read the room and their body language as well as probing them with the Socratic method. All that can be done via Zoom. It's just slightly different, and it, took, it has taken practice. But it's gone well. Thank you for asking. So what's – you know, you think about it. I have two uh, children in college. Thankfully, it's their last year, tuition-wise. Um, <laughs> but they both said, yeah, it, it's not ideal, but we're, we're kind of getting through it. Um, the only thing – you know, labs are a little bit of an issue. Uh, but other than that, you know, they were doing a lot of their stuff kind of remotely anyway as they get to the later years of, of college. Mm-hmm. I think it also depends on the nature of the student, him or herself, right? Yeah. If this is a self-starter who is going to do the work. 
and still gets to be in an environment with peers, uh, hopefully in a safe environment with peers, social distancing and masks wherever possible. I think that it, it can be still really successful. I've been really surprised and delighted by how I've been able to maintain, develop and maintain really meaningful relationships with students and dive into the subject matter via Zoom. There's no substitute for in-person. I'm not suggesting the world should flip a switch and remain this way once the vaccine is widespread, but I do believe that it is still a very effective way to teach, and it's also all about, not to be self-serving, but the, the commitment of the teacher to learning to learn and master this new medium because it is a different way to teach. Yeah, absolutely. Are you still teaching your class on the wine industry? No, this, this <laughs> year, that one was hard to commit to given that that one really does need to be live. So, no, sadly, uh, I do biweekly talk and taste programming with a friend, Tracy Burns, who used to be on Fox Business Network. But we otherwise, I'm not do, teaching wine. This was managerial skills for, for Stanford Business School and for University of Chicago Business School, women as investors, CEOs, directors, and executives. All right, more serious stuff. Hey, speaking of serious stuff, I do wonder, you know, what changes when it comes to medical systems, healthcare systems as a result of COVID, whether it's the increase in telemedicine, or I do wonder about whether the financial structures and financial, um, you know, their backdrops, whether they were really tested during the virus and whether some of them just don't make it through. I think both. Carol, I think they're both really good points. So telemedicine, according to, you know, the markets, uh, shows like it's accelerated five years with market caps for public equities and telemedicine to prove it. Uh, and yet, and those are one end of the spectrum, and I think there will be more behavioral health online and screening. There will be more um, specific matters involving cancer. There's an incredible startup in Chicago actually called Cancer IQ. It came out of the University of Chicago, and it is helps for pre-screening of cancer through technology. So there'll be amazing opportunities like that that should accelerate because of COVID. And yet hospitals, as you already said, operate at such thin margins, 1% to 3%, that That's if amazing. you don't get adequate reimbursement from the government because of the pandemic, or if, you don't, um, if you're not operating efficiently enough, there will likely be regional medical centers who struggle to make it through and have to either go under or get acquired by a bigger system. So that, that kind of con- continues to trend, Alyssa, that we'd unfortunately been seeing prior to the pandemic. But when you think about the economics of a COVID bed is much less profitable than, say, a cancer bed or something else. A lot of those folks, that's one to two percent margins. You know, it, it seems like a lot of areas of the country are going to be have faced even deeper pressures. Agreed. And it got really complicated in terms of, of the bailouts or government subsidies for Entities, because there was a period of time that if you were a hospital that was part of a system with more than 500 employees, you couldn't get access to PPP, which is insane, which is insane program, insane, right? The payroll protection program not being able to apply to our U.S. hospitals was nuts. But I think the Congress figured that part out, uh, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, But it's really important that we realize that if we want to have healthy, functioning hospitals and regional access, if not local access to great medical care, we have to really think about the structure of those systems. It, this, this pandemic has undoubtedly, in my mind, shed a light on some of those uh, challenges. All right. We're going to have to leave it on that note. Um, always get so much when we check in with you, Alyssa. Thank you so much. You do wear so many different hats and really look at the world uh, in a lot of different ways. Our thanks to Alyssa Rapp, CEO of Surgical Solutions, on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. Yeah, I think it's really telling what she do, had to say about kind of healthcare systems and what happens from here, Paul. Yeah, I, you know, I, I really worry about it, and I you know read a lot about how some of these uh, you know smaller communities are losing access to quality health care, and the drive mm-hmm. to get that health care is just getting longer and longer and longer.
Right. And we already see rural communities, you know, where they just don't even have the access. So we still have some some big problems there. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Paul Sweeney. This story, Paul, among our most read on the Bloomberg, it's also, I have to say, it's a must read story because it's about an economist who found, listen to this number, $16 trillion (laughs) when she added up the cost of racial bias. And listen, we do like, we like to do math on these kinds of things here at Bloomberg. And this story definitely delivers. Let's get into it with Bloomberg News ESG reporter Sejal Kishin, uh, along with uh, Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, both of them joining us on the phone from Brooklyn. Joel, like I said, at Bloomberg, we like numbers, and this is a big one. (laughs) (laughs) That one really jumps out at you. Um, And and Sejal um, found a story that is this one of these stories that it's sort of like, how do you you find that story, I think? Um, And it's about Dana Peterson, who is a Citigroup um, global economist. She tried to put a, a price tag on race bias in terms of what it actually means to the economy. Um, say, Joel, how did she come up with $16 trillion? Um, well, it took her something like three months to do. Um, and she poured over, I mean, she's a macroeconomist. Um, so she's normally looking at sort of like big macroeconomic data. But instead, she she, st- she turned to microeconomic data. Yeah, everything from uh, wage levels by race to debt levels um, by county, for instance, um, and basically tallied the cost, um, you know, saying that over the last two decades, uh, the, the U.S. economy lost out um, on $16 trillion uh, because of, of, of racism. So, Sejal, is this kind of, I mean, what's the source of the lost economic growth? Is it taxes? Is it GDP output? Where, where, is, where do we see it in the economy? Or where did she see sure, it? Sure, yeah. It's 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 a GDP. That's a, that that was her calculation. She looked at the overall economy, um, and uh, did it that way. And and Sejal, uh, talk to us about where where should it's landed her. Um, and this was a, a project that took months. Um, mm-hmm. it, n- not something that anybody had ever tried to do. And, and what was the outcome? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, obviously her report got a lot of uh, widespread uh, widespread, uh, readership uh, when it came out last month. Um, But, you know, since uh, doing her report, uh, she's taken up a role um, at the conference board where she's now the uh, chief um, global uh, chief economist there. It's, what's great about a story like this is, and I feel like, you know, Joel, I feel like this is a, this is a number we're going to be quoting at a lot of Bloomberg events, you know, over the next year or so, virtually or other, because it's just, you know, when you put a number on something, money talks and money gets people to do things. I mean, there's another one in your story, Sajel, that talks about her calculations and that an additional 6.1 million jobs a year, 13 trillion in business revenue could have been generated over the last two decades if black entrepreneurs had fair and equitable access to credit. This is a story, I mean, VC, the venture capital world, I mean, there's just no money going there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that number also struck me, that $13 trillion in um, business revenue, that, that's a huge amount. Um, but, you know, she, she did the work, she did the calculations, and, and we've um, also, you know, our, our tech colleagues on the West Coast have done some stories about um, sort of the struggles of uh, black entrepreneurs trying to secure VC capital. So, you know, this is the number you know, that, that she put on that, which is it's a huge number. And I think, you know, putting or quantifying this, I mean, this goes beyond the sort of the social and moral imperative of 
sort of ending racism, you know, putting a number on these things. And, and you know, to take her words, she says this is a way that, um, you know, people in the world of you know, finance and um, economy and, and um, the, the economy, which is our wheelhouse at Bloomberg, um, this is something that they can actually relate to. So interesting, Sejal, going forward, I was looking in your piece, you've got some numbers about even going forward, the cost could be just outstanding, $8 trillion gain in gross domestic product by 2050 if we can close the racial equity gaps. That's according to Alterum, a nonprofit in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So the numbers, I mean, going forward could also be just compelling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we've done a lot of uh, coverage about how um, black and, and Latinx and other minority communities in the US have been disproportionately affected by, by COVID and, and economically as well, not just health wise. And so, you know, given where the economy is now at the moment, it's not an insignificant number. I mean, um, what uh, Dana mentioned is like it's a growth opportunity, you know, and, and money makers are always, always looking for growth opportunities. So, Maybe um, you know, investing in, in black-run businesses, for instance, is a way to, to not only help uh, that community, but to get the overall um, economy back on its feet. Uh, Sejal, another thing that um, uh, stood out to me in the story, and it's just sort of one of those daggers in the heart, was this yeah. sort of this is a person that worked at, at City for a really long time and never put her face into the system because she didn't want you know her colleagues' bias to impact um sort of her ability to do her job um talk to talk to us more about that side of the story yeah no absolutely uh, that was uh, one of the most poignant parts of the conversation i had with her um i mean she's she's been on um you know um financial news networks including ours um so it's good to see but um yeah it was a really sad reality um that you know she wanted to be judged on her work first rather than people judging her um on her race and so um yeah not putting her photograph on the email system felt that she would have a, a better shake um or a fair, fair shake um at being um you know chosen to like do presentations or or write reports um but yeah it was a really poignant part of the interview oh my god that personal story and just talks about growing up and you know being stopped by police and frisked by police and then going to a job and just seeing disappointment on a prospective uh employer's you know face i mean it's just I think about this past year and, you know, we talk a lot about racism and the impact of it. But, you know, when you start to hear these first person stories, Sejal, you know, mm-hmm. this is real and it's rampant. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's something probably that a lot of people miss is the fact that, you know, there are so many professionals out there who unfortunately, you know, do endure the same sort of racism um, that everybody else does. And I, I think we don't pay so much attention to that. And her bringing and talking about her story brought that to life. It was a real sort of reality check. Yeah, well, I'm glad you've told it. Um, a really great story. Yeah. And you can find this story certainly at Bloomberg.com and online and on the Bloomberg terminal. Uh, the headline, Economist Finding $16 trillion When She Tallied the Cost of Racial Bias. All right, Sejal, thank you so much. Sejal uh, Kishin, uh, she is our Bloomberg News ESG reporter on the phone from Brooklyn. Also from Brooklyn, of course, our thanks to Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. It is Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master along with Paul Sweeney. And this week's presidential debate, Paul, it's, I 
believe, expected to focus on foreign policy, but we shall certainly see what happens. And sure to come up is the U.S. relationship with China. So let's get into that and also uh, some thoughts on geopolitical risk in Asia that investors may just be ignoring. David Riedel is president and founder of Riedel Research Group. He's on the phone from San Francisco. David, so nice to have you back with us. I think the last time we talked was May, I believe. Um, how are you? A long time ago. Well, very well, Carol. I hope, you, I hope you're well. Yeah. It uh, seems like there's a new drama every week uh, the, for markets, huh? Well, absolutely. And here we are less than two weeks out from the presidential election. We're all gearing up for the debate. Talk to us a little bit about what you're watching in terms of some of the geopolitical risk over in the Asian region, because we do expect some of that to come up perhaps on Thursday in the debate. Well, I certainly hope it does, because there's a lot of risk out there, and I think people are, um, are ignoring it to their to their peril. Uh, I think people aren't uh, correctly following uh, the, the uh, conflict between India and China that flared up a couple of weeks ago, uh, this ongoing tension between the U.S. and China. Um, people are distracted by the election, of course, and by the pandemic and sort of the drama of the week, uh, and they sometimes forget to pay attention to things that are on the horizon a little bit, uh, but which really could have a big impact on investors and on risk appetite if one of these things came to fruition. And David, you could put me on that list of people who may have taken my eye off the ball of things China there as this pandemic has kind of taken center stage here. The last we really had China in our focus arguably was uh, in Hong Kong, the protests in Hong Kong. Can you give us an update on what's going on in Hong Kong? Absolutely. So uh, Hong Kong continues to see its its uh, special status erode, uh, being treated by, um, by by China increasingly as a simple extension of, of China and uh, ignored, unfortunately, by other players around the world, which would traditionally be uh, in support of the one country, two systems uh, approach that had been agreed to. Uh, the UK, of course, with a long uh, traditional contact uh, connection to uh, Hong Kong, has been distracted by Brexit as well as their own issues with the pandemic. And the U.S., uh, long someone who would stand for democracy and, and human rights, has been distracted and, and less focused on, on those issues in recent years and certainly in recent months. So unfortunately, Hong Kong continues to suffer the erosion of its uh, unique status uh, and special rights. Does it not be the place, the financial you know, place it's been? Um, I mean, does that, is that just, that's the past now? It's not the future anymore? Unfortunately, it is the past, and a lot of things, the U.S. has actually taken some steps to make it less uh, attractive as a financial center, uh, redu- uh, taking away its special status uh, mm-hmm. relative to China, because now they just continue a, uh, a, an extension of China, not a, not a unique place. So I would really watch Singapore and, and Shanghai to be the uh, up-and-coming financial centers uh, in Asia. It's been a long time coming. It will, it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, but I, I think it's an inexorable move towards those new centers. Hey, I do wonder, David, how do you factor in the election and the election outcome, whether it's a Biden White House or whether it's another, it's a second term of uh, a Trump White House and what that means for China-U.S. relations? Because I do think it's safe to say that the U.S., not just under Donald Trump and his team, but we're moving towards more pushback against China, generally speaking. Absolutely right. And we should. I mean, they have really emerged since the 1970s and 80s into now the second largest and by some measures the largest economy in the world. And it's natural that our relationship with them would be more tense, uh, more confrontational uh, and more dynamic at this stage in their growth relative to, to ours. I think that a uh, the current the Republican administration has been 
um, less predictable in their actions, uh, and I think that has been frustrating to many of our, our allies in international relations, as well as some of our um, people with whom we have uh, more ideological and, and, and economic uh, disputes. I, I think that uh, many people would wish a more predictable um, actor uh, in terms of uh, actions and uh, relationships with other countries, trade relationships, and so on and so forth. And I think they may see that in a Biden presidency. Uh, I suspect they would not see uh, much predictability in a second-term Trump, um, and I think that would be a continuation of what we've seen in, in recent years, which has not been good for many of our inter- international relations, and I don't think it's been a healthy development in our relationship with China. David, if the Democrats do take the White House and perhaps even the Senate, do you expect that they will take a noticeably, uh, I guess, confrontational or stronger stance against China than perhaps even the Obama administration did? I think that they will, and I think that's a reflection of the reality of how far we've come. Uh, Having uh, not dealt, I think, appropriately with, for example, supporting the Hong Kong protesters, uh, the Uyghur minority in, in Western China, not confronting China on those fronts, and then having a erratic uh, and, and uh, confusing trade strategy uh, with with China, I think um, puts us in a place where some things need to be confronted on the human rights side, and some things need to be stabilized and 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 uh, sort of managed on the trade side. So I think a a Democratic administration, and especially if they have some congressional power as well, would be a more predictable but more harsh uh, partner uh, with China going forward. Um, David, got about a minute, and then we'll come back and do some more. But just before we go to break, I mean, China and Taiwan, where is that headed? No, we're good. Uh, China has actually, just in the last few few weeks, had some of its most aggressive military maneuvers in the Taiwan Strait. Yeah. Um, Taiwan has been edging more towards independence, been more vocal in their views of themselves as a separate country, not as just a province of China, as that longstanding dispute. And uh, other countries around the world have now started to accept that Taiwan is its own entity. And I think uh, generationally, we're headed towards a time when Taiwan and Taiwanese think of themselves in that way. And and China's not going to take that sitting down. So I would suspect that there's going to be some conflict there, as well as the issues that we see in the South China Sea, which are really getting heated up. You know, I want to get to the point of President Xi. What is his position right now in China? It seems as strong as it's ever been, is it? It is the strongest leader that they've seen in in recent decades. Uh, He controls every lever of power, uh, continues to make himself ever more powerful, uh, and has enshrined himself in Chinese political history by, by... implementing what's considered now to be Xi thought uh, on the same level as Mao Zedong thought, which is an incredible accomplishment for a modern Chinese leader. What is what is Xi thought? It revolves around a strong belief in nationalism. Uh, that, that's been true for many leaders, but it's more core to Xi's identity and a very uh, significant commitment to the military. Um, Xi has been dramatically expanding military spending. They've built uh, several times... Uh, more ships uh, since 2015 than the U.S. has, and now have a larger navy than the U.S. Um, this is an incredible turnaround over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, when uh, China's lack of a blue water navy was really one of their military weak, weak spots. So complete control of the of the military, of the political apparatus, and a dedication of all those resources 
to uh, protecting China's national uh, borders and national mission. You know, David, when you talk about the buildup of the military, is that for show of might or is that for actual might to put it's to for work? Actual, it's yeah. for actual might. Uh, they really feel very strong. They need to have control of more um, – uh, more firm control of their borders, hence the dispute with, with India a few weeks ago, and very significantly protect um, their, their strong belief that they need to control the South China Sea for its oil and gas reserves, as well as its importance for seagoing trade, uh, and, and, and uh, so important for, to uh, North Asia, Japan, and Korea, as well as to China, getting access to all the materials they need to continue to run the largest economy in the world. So, David, what, what do you think the Chinese government leadership wants, or how does it want its relationship with the United States to evolve? Do they, are they looking for conflict? Are they looking for, hey, just treat us as an equal partner? What do they think, what do you think they're looking for? Or do they not even care about us that much yeah. anymore? Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, they don't. They, they, they do, I think. They do care about their standing on the international stage. So let's globalize this for a second. Less important what their relationship is with the U.S., but they do want to see themselves in the upper echelon of, of countries, a, a equivalent power to the United States, for example. And they do have a 50 and 100 year view of how they're going to evolve towards uh, this position of being uh, the wealthiest country in the world, the largest country in the world, and the most powerful country in the world. And they'll wait generations to do it. Uh, they just really feel like they were humiliated by international powers back in the 1800s. And they never want to live through that again. So they need to be strong, powerful, and very well, well grounded in terms of um, their ability to control their sphere. So what holds them back? And I do wonder, too, about, you know, there's certainly their relationships with the big global powers, but there's also, you know, relationships that they do on the side. And I do wonder how much pushback we see from other developed nations, especially when it comes to human rights abuses, privacy concerns, and and other things that if you are going to operate in the upper echelon of, of power, echelons of power, you know, there are certain rules that go along with that. That's right. And we had all, we had long believed that as they, as they became more involved in global uh, negotiations and discussions and multilateral organizations and so on and so forth, they would start to uh, play by those rules. But we've learned in the last 10 or, or, or 12 years mm-hmm. that they're actually working to change those rules. Um, so they don't have an interest in really playing along with the World Trade Organization and the UN and so on and so forth. They want to create parallel organizations or mold those organizations to uh, reflect their growing power. They are very frustrated, for example, by the structure of the, of the UN, which was, of course, created after World War II, that really excludes them. Uh, from the from a position of, of power and influence in that organization. So just a minute left here, David. So what does this mean for investors? Because I think about all those global multinationals <laughs> that they would do anything sure. to be in the Chinese sure. market. So what? So as investors, how do we need to think about it? And just got about a minute here. So think about the history. We, the mark, U.S. market has tripled over the past 10 years. It's nearly doubled over the past five. Global markets have doubled, more than doubled over the past five years. The U.S. S&P is current, has gone from 20 times a PE multiple in 2015 to 35 times today. Many of these markets are priced for perfection. Investors simply have to be to have to realize that it is more likely than not that we will have some sort of geopolitical upset. It's a perhaps it's a accidental collision of two vessels in the South China Sea where the US has a new aircraft carrier group the Ronald Reagan group uh, down there right now. 
a small mistake could lead to a reevaluation of risk appetite around the world, and investors could really uh, pull back on some of their enthusiasm for equity. So I think people need to be defensive, they need to be aware, they need to be informed, and they need to sort of look out beyond what's happening this week, this month, uh, this year here in the United States. And think about longer term. Where are we going to be two years, three years, five years from now? Well, and certainly China is somebody who understands uh, long-term strategies just generally overall. So um, that's that's some really good insight. David, thank you so much. Great to catch up with you. David Riedel, president and founder of Riedel Research Group, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. So, Paul, this is a guest we always look forward to checking in with us. Back with us for Drive to the Close is Tom Plum, President and Chief Investment Officer at Plum Funds. They're based in Madison, Wisconsin. He joins us on the phone from there. That Plum Balanced Fund, consistently a top performer. It is in the 99th percentile for the past five years, according to Bloomberg data. And uh, it has returned on average annually about 12%. Tom, good to have you here with Paul and myself. How are you? We're great here in Madison, uh, getting a little bit of winter, but uh, and very concerned about the COVID picking up, but uh, everything else looks pretty good so far. Well, tell us about COVID. Yep, we are watching it across the country, and it does feel like Midwest and Wisconsin in particular, you know, is, is where we were in the spring, the New York metro. Um, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? How is it affecting life? Well, I think everyone is being affected by staying in and, you know, some of the trends we've talked about in the past have really accelerated because of that. But, uh, you know, I think we expected once the kids came back to colleges and stuff and school that you'd see a little bit of an uptick. But what's been surprising is how sticky it's been and how it's continued to just even accelerate, even though people seem to be very cautious and concerned and you know everyone's wearing a mask inside a building so it's Mm. it's hard to understand it's interesting tom um let's take a look you know the markets here obviously they're concerned about the coronavirus they've got so many things to, to, to think about whether it's again the pandemic the economic impact thereof the elections how do you try to see through it and how do you approach the market given that there are so many distractions out there for an investor yeah, Paul, that's a great point. I mean, this is a very interesting time. We're in earnings season. Uh, we expect to continue to see those companies that were the growth companies through the first phase of this pandemic to continue to uh, add to that growth rate. But what we're really going to see is from the industrials and others about what they've seen, what they've been able to do with their business models to cut expenses, to right size, and things like that. We've been concerned for quite a while that these companies that have significant amount of capacity, if it's the restaurants, airlines, uh, railroads, industrials in general, that they need to right size for the different volume expectations that they're going to have coming out of this than they did beginning this year 
before the pandemic started. So what does that mean so, for um, so what what does that mean for something like the airline industry? I was talking with uh, the team of one major airline earlier this morning, and you know, trying to find the way forward and trying to think about safety as well as you know the financial security of their balance sheet. What does it mean for an industry, maybe you know, Tom, like the airlines? Well, you know, we, we've been in a great time for the airlines for the last few years, maybe for the last couple decades. But for any of us who are a little bit older, we remember that it is a tough industry. And uh, often you had forced mergers, uh, bankruptcies, and things like that, because highly capital-intensive businesses tend to be in a difficult spot whenever the volumes aren't there. So uh, we're we're concerned. We we're not investors in the airlines or their suppliers, and uh, we expect that the recovery they're going to have is going to be more shallow than say the V-shaped recovery that we're seeing in some industries. So Tom, what are the, some of the names you are looking at? Given that uh, you know the pandemic is still with us, economic recovery is probably not in the very near term. What are some of the names that uh, you think are uh, show some opportunity? Well, Paul, you know, um, I've talked to Carol a number of times in the past about how uh, my daughter is currently working in Shanghai. Uh, Twenty-some years ago, my son worked in uh, northern China, uh, was teaching. And he, um, when we went to visit him after a year in China, he had nothing but cash. No transactions were done with anything other than currency. Uh, there was no such thing other than in the tourist sections of somebody accepting plastic for payments. And what you've seen is that accelerate over the last 20 years where uh, people who had been basically unbanked before are all now on the digital economy and digital financial transactions. We see that the United States, where we were much more advanced in the past, we're actually in a catch-up mode right now. So companies like PayPal, for example, we we think have a long trend ahead of them, especially internationally. You know, when we look at their relationship with Mercardi Libre, the payment processing and basically a mini Alibaba for the South America, they um, their relationship there, they're dealing with populations that two or three years ago, over 50% were unbanked. And now with the using the QR codes, the Venmo, the different distribution of how we buy things. Mm-hmm. This company is in great shape. And as opposed to a lot of the credit card companies that had been embedded in travel and entertainment, they never really had a big part of that business. So last quarter they had uh, you know revenues over 20-some percent growth, and we expect more of the same going to the next few quarters. So a company like PayPal, we think, is really an interesting company. Uh, we also love uh, companies like NVIDIA, which uh, what I call the great enabler. Uh, if you haven't a chance to look at their YouTube video, it's basically software on a chip, and it is used in every aspect of artificial intelligence, the digital economy, remote working, emulation software, cloud computing, and they're by far the biggest leader in all those segments. 
Uh, so we like companies that are driving this change and those that are enabling the change. Hey, those, hey, I think, are very, very attractive. They are, Tom. 30 seconds really quick. But and NVIDIA's got a PE of like 89. Uh, PayPal has a, a PE of 96. You're okay with that? You would commit <laughs> new money at this point? Just really quickly. Yeah, uh, well, again, it's not just where the PE is, but as long as the revenue is in accelerating growth, we think that you're going to be looking farther. And as we've talked about before, when you have zero interest rate, the long duration or growth companies are always going to be more attractive than value companies. Yeah, we're looking at about 20% revenue growth, it looks like, uh, for PayPal uh, year over year in 2020. So uh, those are pretty strong numbers. <laughs> All right, Tom, thank you so much. Tom Plum, he's president and chief investment officer at Plum Funds based in Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.